welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to Great Shot Kid, the Nerd Party's show about Star Wars and the behind the scenes making of it and all that good stuff. I'm Mike and John is uh, not back yet from his adventure with the hurricane in uh, good old Florida, but he's, he's, he's doing well, he's, he's good, he, he made it through and, and everything and he'll be back next week for sure. And sorry, we're going to postpone our Splinter of the Mind's Eye uh, read through until next week, but uh, definitely check that out. In the meantime... I'm joined by a very special guest, Nick Anastasio. How's it going, Nick? Did I pronounce your name right? You did. You did. All right. Um, like, <laughs> congratulations. Thanks. Um, Thanks. I'm doing good. Uh, I will do my best to fill in for John's smooth baritone voice. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, for those people who don't know, uh, Nick, you are one of the Star Wars creators who we talk about. You were an editor on The Clone Wars. I was fortunate enough, yeah, to uh, work on a couple of the prequels at ILM and then actually go to the ranch for seven years where I learned, literally, how to tell Star Wars uh, from George and then from Dave Filoni. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, specifically editing in Star Wars and, and what it is and what makes it special. Because, I mean, obviously, uh, everyone sort of acknowledges that the editing in Star Wars is um, some of the best ever, right? I mean, the first movie won an Oscar and all that good stuff. And, you know, people talk about, you know, Jedi and how that 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 uh, that climax sort of like changed the structure of blockbusters mm -hmm. from there on out and everything and and yeah we're going to get into that and specifically like what what you learned on uh on the clone wars from george himself but also uh some examples of of that um throughout the series so okay let's 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 go all the way back to the beginning right because like i like i was just telling you off mic um animation editing is like completely foreign to me. Like I have absolutely no idea how it works and I have an idea in my head, which is kind of completely backwards from what I think live action editing is in a lot of ways, you know, just because of the process of, of animation and, and mm -hmm. the labor involved with it and everything. It just seems like it's almost a reverse of 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 live action. I could be completely wrong about that, and I'm I'm hoping that that you'll you'll set me straight here. But before we we get into your animation stuff, like what are your origins with editing in general? I mean, is, did you study it in school or? or? I did. Um, well, I I my first passion, um, well, film you could say on the meta level is my passion, and within that, once I started, once I became aware and really determined to, to work in film, um, my focus became on storytelling, um, writing. Uh, I was a screenwriting major, um, and I still, it, it's still my first passion. Um, however, once I got, on my first semester, during my first semester at school, I became aware very quickly um, of editing 
and there was both a creative and a practical attraction um, on the practical side uh, because that's film is a business. Um, immediately, it was very very clear quickly that there was more of an of a delineated career path to become an editor um, than there was for writing. The writing was literally who you knew and where you were being there at the right time. I mean, there's skill involved, but as far as career path. Um, so there was that. But then I, I genuinely fell in love with the fact that I, 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 had, to take, I had to take editing, um, an, an editing one-on-one class. That was a prerequisite. I didn't have to go further, but I had a wonderful professor. And immediately what emerged to me was the storytelling part. And, and that's, I think, something that we'll probably we'll touch on again during, during this, this show. And you'll see that editing, even when you cut picture, um, is very much like writing in a lot of ways. Um, it's constructing a story, for sure, um, and analyzing where you need to have certain parts, the point of view you choose to tell the story, uh, pacing a lot of the same elements. Um, and so that fascinated me. Um, on top of that, uh, there was kind of a little asterisk uh, because some of the first projects we had to work uh, on at school were very sound driven. Um, our, our professor was kind of building it up to more of kind of a long form editing. And so he started with kind of a music video thing and then it was a short film thing. Um, but initially it was very sound driven. Um, sound effects, dialogue, music, and I've within editing, sound has always been my favorite, and so that really attracted me. And on top of that, um, what really fascinated me was I, I came in at school right around the transition um, between from from linear to non-linear non editing systems. Um, my school had gotten the first four Avid systems, um, and um, which had a single screen. And, uh, uh, but it was a big deal. And I remember our, our professor who was coming from the traditional background saying, if you guys can learn it. And he, he was kind of, he was himself really fascinated by the struggles that he had had to put up with in, in uh, uh, working on film and video even, uh, and how this was all going away. And so that kind of, it helped communicate some of that excitement because he would get so into describing to us, not how easy it was, um, but how fluid it was to edit um, with uh, with a uh, computer program that that really sort of imbued in me the desire to just hunker down and and uh, and get into that and and literally uh, it made me it made me curious to figure out what that tool was and um, we I booked some time in our computer labs at school uh, and for about a month I can't, I kind of gave myself a, a fake project a dummy project and I would just go in on Saturday and edit from the morning until like 11 midnight and then same thing on Sundays and, and literally just figuring out what to do as I needed to do it with the manual, you know, with the instructions. Um, how do I splice? How do I import media? How do I, you know, the basic stuff to the more complex tasks that you can do with the program. And that's kind of where I started. And then um, it's the usual path of I was doing, um, I started to, as once I gained confidence enough, I started to do a few freelance projects um, that I got, uh, connected to through professors at school, uh, which led me to be able to kind of hack a reel at the same time as I, as I could tell. Again, that I was lucky enough that it was at the time when 
just being able to put on the resume that I knew the software was an asset because it was just becoming popular. And so that was people, people wanted editors who knew how to cut on Avid. Um, and between my school pedigree and then, um, uh, the, the gigs that I got that ended up getting me an internship at, at ILM and then the rest is history. Yeah. I, you know, as someone who has cut with a razor blade and pre perfed tape and everything like that, mm-hmm. I can tell you like avid. Oh my God. I can't imagine doing it prior to avid to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's really cool. So you know, once you started working at ILM, I know that, you know, obviously as a visual effects company, you were editing visual effects, correct? Mm-hmm. So how is that different from what you learned in school? I mean, what what exactly does a visual effects editor do? That's a very good question. <laughs> that's the questions you're, that's the question that your your mom and dad ask you and, and you just dread answering it because you know there's no way you're going to be able <laughs> Within five seconds, they're going to look at you with glassy eyes going, oh, but that, that's nice to hear. Um, but basically, okay, first I'll say kind of in a nutshell, the, the good thing about um, starting as a visual effects editor is it's an excellent base. It, you're right when you said, you know, you, you sort of connected it to school. It is almost like furthering kind of what you're learning in school because you learn from the craft standpoint, you learn a lot of techniques, a lot of things you have to do. It's almost like muscle memory as, as a, as an athlete, I would say, you know, it's almost, you know, those training montages in the Rocky movie where you see Rocky do these things that have nothing to do with boxing, but that are going to teach him the moves that when he steps into the ring, now all of a sudden he knows how to do. That's exactly what visual effects editing gives you is basically you do, you, you learn, you practice all these methods, all these things, which, because you're not doing necessarily, sometimes you get to do creative editing. It depends on the relationship you have with the, with the studio cutting room and the, it's show by show really. But a, a big part of your task is more craft based, technique based. Um, and so you learn from organizational skills to being thorough to understanding um, how a movie is constructed because that, and that's where we get into the nitty gritty of what a VFX editor does. Your job, to try to put it as succinctly as possible, is to take the cut fully assembled with all the layers, especially now that we do nonlinear editing, and to deconstruct it completely so that you can understand how all the elements were assembled scene by scene, shot by shot within a scene, and then now within a shot, layer by layer, because we can have tons of layer depending on the style of movie, the style of the director, the style of the editor. And then from that, understand what needs to be done on the visual effects side to each element of each shot in each of the scenes that we're gonna work on, and then communicate that to the visual effects team, both the production part of the team and the artist, the animation supervisor, the visual effects supervisor, the sequence or compositing supervisor, the layout guys, knowing their tools, you, you basically are at that point a translator. You are supposed to understand how the director and the cutting, the cutting room, the editors think, why they did what they, what they did, how they did it. Now you have to put it back in terms that make sense to the match movers, the animators, the compositors, so that they know what they're supposed to do with each element in each shot, you know, things that have to be sped up, things that have to, you know, a lot of times, for example, 
think of some of the simpler examples that won't take too too long to explain, but like they will, they can um, split in the frame. They can use a take. If you have a, if you have a two shot with two characters in and foreground people, background people, a lot of times they will actually have selected, uh, even though it looks in the cut as one full element, they'll have actually split and are using take five for the principal character in the screen left foreground. They'll use take seven for the background characters. Sometimes they'll actually do a splice where they like the, the body performance from take five, but they like the head performance from take six. So they kind of scooge that together. Sometimes they'll add things like um, they'll do that. But on top of that one, because the extras in the back or someone was moving fast enough, that part that they've selected for the background has actually been sped up. Um, then there's nonlinear curves to the, to, to the retime. So they can start at normal speed and then slow it down and then ramp it up and so on. So you have to basically from shot to shot, element to element, see what is going on, how it was put together, why. And then you also are supposed to know the tools that are being used by the visual effects team and tell them, okay, so this is what they're doing. This is how you have to do to do your part so that on the back end, when we deliver the shot, they'll get what they need. And then, so when that's, when the turnaround starts to happen, then it's your role as well to kind of be again, the monitor and the translator, the other way around. You're supposed, you're, you're the gateway. You get all the shots, every take, every iteration um, from all the different groups, from animation, from, from compositing, from uh, match move and so on. And you're supposed to make sure that they're applying all the proper effects and that they're, they're, creating the shot in a way that matches what the editor and the director did in the cut. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds very similar, at least part of this sounds very similar to um, that scene in the episode one documentary where Lucas is working with Ben Burt and he's talking about, you know, like moving, you know, different pieces mm -hmm. around and everything and mm -hmm. it seems like as far as that's concerned like episode one might have been one of the the early examples of that i mean i i seem to remember bert like like after lucas leaves bert's there and he's like that's how we do it now you yep. know or something I, I mean so so that was like i mean it, am i am i correct in thinking that that's sort of what you're talking about there that that's exactly larger yep. scale with like elements like whether it's models or cgi or you know, uh, in addition to live action stuff, like just all of that together, it's it's more like what's occurring inside of a single shot as opposed to cutting two shots together. That's absolutely that's absolutely correct. Um, that's that's exactly you're dead on, and you're also right. Episode one was, I mean, to my knowledge, the first film that really applied that uh, to the extent that it did. If not, definitely with like one of the first few that did it and to the extent that george pushed it i'm that I, I would wager he he was definitely the first and it was the first film um it's now become the standard for the way all visual effect films are are done um and episode one was definitely the first one that 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 did that and i mean now you get to a level where uh, i was just before i left i was helping out another editor who's on a project where you can have all kinds of, of added layers of complexity because you can have, so let's say we talk about different elements. Well, these different elements might be shot with different types of cameras that shoot at different speeds. And 
when you, you have different types of, of stock because now now we're 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 very now that we have such high resolutions one of our responsibilities is also image quality image space color space um and so basically when you are in this offline world where you're in the cutting room and you're not working with your final image and you have to work very very fast because you're with the director and and he or she just wants to see an idea of how the shot's going to play in context in the sequence you can scooch things together in a way that that is perfectly acceptable in this kind of offline on the monitor of your computer world tells the story but it's a it's an entirely different story once you you're creating the final 4k image that you're going to deliver back to the to the studio um and so if you have an image that is composited with elements that are shot at different speeds from different cameras a film camera a digital camera again in this in this in this low res offline world it'll look fine but we have to basically be able to understand what they're doing so that we can talk to the different groups and at that level as well make sure that we create we can get to a stage if we get to a stage where the compositors the animators get these elements and they're one to one to how they were shot at these variable speeds with different types of of uh, of source material in terms of color lighting it's too late it's go it's going to take a lot more money time and effort to try to make it all fit so we have to say okay well this is shot with this type of camera instead of that camera so that is going to have to have to go through a different pipeline first so that we can convert it so that it matches the other elements which are which are shot by camera a which is a different different type of camera and so the the mosaic has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger i have to say that like your description of all of this sounds absolutely exhausting <laughs> i you know i mean just i mean there's so many just options to choose from when you're just cutting together like a scene but then when you're getting into a single shot of a single scene i mean it just seems like an like an epic undertaking it is it, it can be it definitely and depending on the the type of project there's a couple of shows we have in house now which are which are daunting um and there's one that i was on you know, last fall which was which was fairly daunting um it can be overwhelming uh you know i mean i think part, obviously you have to have kind of a, a of a taste for it so you i think you kind of get almost in this sort of you do have to i, I think first of all have a knack for for kind of having an analytical mind and um it's a kind of forensic investigation right understanding that the really liking the puzzle which i think connects to creative editing um and that's why it's another i think really good base to go into creative editing um because you you have to really like to kind of this idea of like seeing pieces and then figuring out a pattern or figuring out how to put it all together um or deconstruct it uh, if you know which which whether you go forward or backwards it's part of the same process there's um you know on a simpler level in, ter in terms of the number of elements to juggle but kind of the same idea recently i was involved with uh, uh i was helping out some of the guys on our stage at work um they had shot this footage um, with this new camera that they're testing and that camera doesn't record sound so they were asking me they had to send it to the studio for them to make selects and they were asking me to sync the sound which had been recorded separately and so at first i think okay well it's simple enough because sound is actually not frame driven so i just bring in my you know i ask them what frame rate does the camera shoot at and i'll bring in my sound and it should in theory if i sync it up to the to the clap it should 
sync up. So they tell me the frame rate of the camera. First of all, they, they had that wrong, <laughs> but which it's great because it, it added it added an extra layer where you do it the way they, they told you that I created a project at the frame rate. They told me that I should work at, and it wasn't, you know, obviously there's something, there's something was wrong. So I had to kind of reverse engineer from that and, and figure out that actually they, their frame rate wasn't correct. Once I figured the right one, I bring in all the footage, I bring in the sound, I sync it up at the clap, I play, and I can tell right away that there's obviously a problem because as I play, it's, it's in sync at first, but it starts to drift. And the further along you go, the worse the, the, the drift is. So obviously there's an issue. So it took me, it took me three days back and forth um, because I kept, and I'm not going to get into the, 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 the technicality of it, but I kept pinging back the stage guys. And I was like, did you do this? No. And then they would, they would come back at me, of course, that that's the back and forth. No, well, you must be doing this wrong. And I'm like, no, no, I've got this right. So we would go back and forth, back and forth until I figure out. And they kept, and they kept telling me, well, I don't understand. You know, you should be able to sync it up because, you know, sound is not frame, frame driven. So, and I would tell them, yeah, I know that, which is why I can tell there's a problem. So, fi so finally, I figured out that they had recorded the picture at frame rate X, and they had recorded sound not with the actual sound recording device, which would have then recorded, you know, sample rate driven and not frame rate, but with an actual video camera. Mm -hmm. And the video camera they had recorded the sound with was at a different frame rate than the one they had sent me the selects from. Yeah. And so then I then I was like, well, okay, that's great, but so you've already slaved your sound to a different frame rate now. So now this this sound has to be converted without changing the pitch. So I had to figure out how to do that and basically re-export it back and take it into an, another application because Avid unfortunately you can you can change the length mm -hmm. but it will change the pitch. So we had to take it into another, into Final Cut. And then in that, I was able to, to rubber band it and change the timing without changing the pitch. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the kind of stuff that you do. And I imagine there's an added layer of complexity in that the technology in visual effects is changing all the freaking time, right? I mean, we didn't even mm -hmm. have digital cameras back when, you know, episode one was, well, I mean, I guess mm -hmm. we kind of did, but, you know. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it definitely sounds like your job is something where it's, it's constantly in just a state of flux, right? I mean, it's, yeah, and, and you have to be, I mean, you cannot be, whether you're comfortable with that or not, you cannot afford to stay motionless because otherwise you're, you're going to just get completely, you're going to fall off the train and fall, yeah. fall on the side. I mean, we are, you know, we have, I'm lucky enough. You know, I mean, I keep my mind or I try to nimble with what's going on and, and you know, trying different techniques that I hear. But I, we have a couple of editors on our team who are really on the forefront of experimenting. They, they are able to, to, to carve out pockets of time where they can. And, and one, of, one of our uh, editors on, in particular has taken the time to learn some Python scripting as well. So she's actually able to not just come up with ideas, but try she she basically is integrating editing now into into our pipeline where there's things that are part of our workflows that we are able to write scripts for which then kind of completely and that's almost mind-boggling on its own on its own because you you can you can do things at the avid which then when you export whether it's your 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 cut or, or an edl of the cut you know these tools and you run scripts um 
in the pipeline that will then take these things that you've exported and then create all this information and do all these things that help us actually communicate what we need to for what's being done in the cut faster to the different people that we work with. That's crazy. That's crazy. Okay, before we move on to the animation, I just have one more question that I have to ask because, I don't know, this is one of my little whatevers. Have you ever had an opportunity to work on or play with an edit droid? No, I have not. I would have loved to, but I did not. I, I just love the idea of a laserdisc based editing system. That yeah, like I would have. Like I would have loved to. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, especially because J George talked about the edit droid, um, and I would have loved to play with one. I mean, I did have to learn when I went a lot further back because, uh, ironically, you know, I kind of got started or, or thanks to having learned the Avid. But once once I got in at ILM. It was a transition, like the first at least a good seven, eight years I was there, we were still using film as well as as well as Avid's. And it was when I started, it was actually more film than Avid, then it was kind of a, an even balance, and then progressively film got got phased out. By the time we left our original location to to move to the Presidio, that's when we basically did the hard transition and because we had an actual film group and we had you know, a lot of optical equipment and all that either got sold, trashed or retired. But I, I had to. So when I when I was a, a, an assistant editor, one of my first duties was to run film dailies and to assemble reels and stuff. So I had to I had to go back and learn, you know, learn to splice and work with work print, how to handle negative. I had to I had to um, you know, do like you said, you know, razor splicing and work with a with a moviola, a cam, uh, which you know, it was, I, I just, it, it got me to have so much uh, admiration for editors who cut entire features. And, and I mean, it does translate both into why a lot of the guys who uh, were very creative felt so liberated when, when nonlinear programs um, came about, but also, and that's something that I think has, has definitely pervaded through the film industry. I think there was a quality to, the restriction and the comp the complexity of tools like uh, like the ones that were using the optical days because it forced you so much more to think about what were you where you were going to do before you did it. Uh, you could not afford to be sloppy. You could not afford to be lazy, or else you were going to have a badly cut film or a film that that is just trashed okay that, that kind of leads into to to the animation thing i don't know or maybe it doesn't but it seems to me like it does because i mean like here here it is you know it, it, you, like we're just saying doing live action stuff and you know the avid making uh or allowing for more creativity in terms of experimentation and stuff like that but i it it seems to me anyway and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems to me that with animation editing there has to be a lot more planning uh ahead of time because you, you know you don't want to be wasteful in terms of the animation which you're producing so how does the process of editing animation differ from the process of of editing film and i mean maybe before we get into this how did you make the transition from ILM to the Lucasfilm animation and get involved with the Clone Wars uh, in particular? Well, I had seen a very, very early, um, I mean, I don't even know if it was 30 seconds. Uh, it was a very early, uh, you could say teaser. It was a concept cut. It was maybe like four or five shots, something like that, which um, Dave had cut 
um, it was almost almost basically a test, a proof of proof of concept, which they had taken to some. It wasn't it wasn't something big like Comic Con or some some public. I think I, I forget what what event it had been played at, but they had taken it somewhere, and we had done some some posts, some onlining work for that um, at at ILM. Um, cutting it with, uh, I, 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 had, I had done that for them. I think at the time I, I had some free time, so somebody had asked me to help out. And so I created this piece, which was a few minutes, I can't remember, five, six minutes, which was, you know, these shots with some talking head interviews with Dave and George, um, and then some cross cut with some concept art, you know, early stuff that they could show. And I just got really excited. I, I you know, I, I thought the look was cool. I thought the idea um, was daring and cool. To me, it felt obvious that there was genuine passion in Dave and what he was trying to do. I could tell that George was also genuinely involved and into the idea. And I thought, man, this is great. This is, this is kind of, I don't want to say the Star Wars of my generation because, you know, I was already well into my, into my late 20s. But but I felt like, okay, this is, this is kind of new, new Star Wars being made. And not just new as in like, oh, there's an, another episode in the trilogy, or, but, but a new form of Star Wars being born. You know? So it, in a way, to me, it felt like this is kind of like being back in 1974, 1975, where a bunch of guys are, are thinking, hey, what about dot, dot, dot? And that felt very exciting. That was almost about a year, I think, before... I joined in, but uh, a few, maybe two, three months later, I dropped an email. I, I, I found out, I learned that one of the recruiters who I knew from ILM, who I was friends with, had left and was now a recruiter for Lucas Animation at the ranch. So I, dropped, I just dropped her an email and I said, hey, you know, I, um, I hear you're at the ranch now. I'm really excited about what George and Dave Filoni are doing with the Clone Wars. Um, if anything comes up that you think I would be a good fit for, give me a ring. Um, I would definitely love to take you up on the, any opportunity. And so, you know, whatever, six, seven, eight months went by. And then one day she sent me an email and said, Hey, something's come up. Do you, are you still interested? And I said, definitely. And we talked and what, what they needed at the time was an associate editor, which actually turned, turned up, turned out to be the perfect transition job for me because the associate editor position was you you came in on the back end of the creation of an episode where at that point the story editor which is what i became later had already assembled the cut in what we call layout which is layout layout is it's 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 already 3d but it's it's a very kind of you're using rough cheap blockier models and everything is black and white so there's no there's no render but but the cameras are already the same cameras that you're going to use in the final animation the lenses the moves so that way it it allows you to to get a very accurate um idea for what your cut is going to look like but in an environment that still allows you to change things fairly easily and without without spending a lot of time or money doing it if you need to so that's already been done it's already been worked on by the story editor and Dave or the, sto the story editor and George and locked at that level. Then it goes into full animation, um, fully detailed animation. Then it gets rendered. And at that point, you get the cut back. Um, or actually, you are, 
kind of the way the visual effects editor does. You're basically in charge of, as, as the animation comes in and as the renders come in, you're in charge of cutting them in over that sort of rough layout cut and making sure that it all matches in lengths. You don't make any change. You, you just cut according to how the layout cut was locked by George and the story editor. And once you have a, a, a whole cut assembled, fully animated, fully rendered, then Dave comes back and you do a pass at it with him. Um, and then George comes in and you do a pass with, with him. And so, you know, there's a level, uh, uh, again, obviously to a point, the cut is already there. The story is already there. You're not going to go back to square one. So there's a point that, that, is, that has some of the elements of what you, you do as a visual effects editor, but especially early on, which is when I was doing it the first two years, um, and we were figuring out, everyone was figuring out what the Clone Wars was, how we were going to tell these particular stories. There's still a significant amount of reshuffling, cutting, and that's, that was a perfect, perfect opportunity for me to cut my teeth on understanding story structure. Um, because I would get the cut built without having to do anything. And then Dave and George would come in and they would look at it and we would, they would start to say, oh, okay, well, we thought this would work here. But now, now that we see it with the full pace and everything, this needs to breathe more. This actually feels like it drags. We should slow it down. This scene now, and sometimes it can be as, as something as trivial as the lighting. Now that the lighting is in, it, it feels out of place because we go, from, we go from something very dark to something very bright to something very dark again. And so all of a sudden, the cut feels out of order. It's technically not. It follows the, it follows the plot. But visually, that's something that George is very keen on. It's jarring. And you don't pick up why until you realize that it's because the lighting makes it feel like it's out of order. So then you figure out how, to, how can we change the order so that we feel like we have a more pleasing visual progress in terms of the lighting. So I learned all that for about um, two years. And then the, the other editor, um, Jason Tucker, who was the only story editor at that point um, in 2008 said, hey, I think that you've learned enough. And if you're interested, uh, I've talked to Dave and we'd like to promote you and make you full story editor so that there's two of us, it'd be me and you. And, and that was it. That's awesome. Um, getting back to the associate editing thing, because I'm, I'm curious about the nitty gritty of that, I guess. How long is the gap between when the, associate, when the story editor makes their final cut and when the showrunner or whoever, the director, does their pass? Um, you, you mean the, the, the final pass? Yeah, yeah. So, so it varied. And the, that amount of time, as we got better at doing what we did, shrank over the over the life of the show initially i would say the amount of time between the moment that jason who at the time was the the only story editor would lock the cut in layout as we called it with george and the time that george would come back to do the final cut with me in color which is what we, what we called that last phase would probably be two and a half to three months and was this like concurrent with the sound editing or is that something that pretty much came in after you guys made your final pass? So basically another one of my jobs as the associate editor, which actually once I became a story editor, I kind of took it and moved it with me 
earlier up the the workflow into the the layout phase but at the time i started when i was the associate one of my jobs in addition to the things i already described to you was to create a full scratch sound effect bed for the episode and a full scratch temp music bed for the episode the idea being twofold one we wanted when george came back for the final cut dave's marching orders were it has to feel because we would also go into our into the theater and project the episode actually on the big screen because George had said we have to be able to evaluate each episode as if we were watching a Star Wars movie and it has to hold up to the same quality checks that that you would run if it was a feature film so every time he would come before we would go for the final cut we would actually go into the screening room and project the episode and so kind of working our way back from there Dave had said when we go in even though we haven't put in the final sound effects are not in yet and the final music's not in yet it has to sound as good and final and polished as if it was something that was ready to go to air on TV. So one of my jobs was to, to, to be the, the temp music editor and the temp sound effects editor and designer, because I had to, you had to create, you know, uh, the music and, and, and the uh, music tracks and the sound effects. And, and um, there was also a practical uh, reason to do it that way, which is once, once you, once we had everything in place, um, it was easier, therefore faster, therefore cheaper for Skywalker Ranch to come in and do the actual sound design and sound um, editing. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, obviously we, 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 got, we asked them to give us the full library of, of uh, Star Wars sound effects, which they did. And so basically, and there were times when we, we knew it was going to be temp because we were going to have a new weapon or a new ship engine or a new something, which we used something that was as close as what we felt was right. But we knew that Dave was going to go talk to Matt Wood and David Acord and, and have them design something new. But for a lot of time, you know, for anything from, from, from Jedi starfighters to the wind um, and wall of crowd sound effects from Tatooine, all these are things which are going to be what they're going to be. So by, by already putting them in, um, they're going to use their own file and they're going to edit it in Pro Tools and get a much better output quality. But basically, we're, we're saving them a lot of time. And so these elements are already in place. And then we did the same thing for our, our um, composer, Kevin Kiner. He had to work. I mean, you, you have to remember that these are people, I mean, Kevin Kiner does TV, but Skywalker Sound usually never does TV. They're used to work on movies where they, they're designing and editing the sound for eight months at a time. And we would ask them to, to turn around full episodes. And again, George demanded feature quality in a matter of two weeks or three weeks. So, so and, and even though Kevin Kiner, our composer, does TV, um, again, the demands that George and Dave were putting were very high in the order of, I want this level of quality at that level of time, you know, like it was, it was much lower time, time to quality ratio. So by creating a full bed of, of temp music that would allow him to kind of get an idea. And then he would have meetings with Dave where they would, they would talk about against like specific instruments that he had in mind, if he had any or moods and so on tempo. So, so it was, he would definitely create original music, but it would help him get a feel for what we were going for. 
Um, and um, so that's that that that's where the how the sound and music uh, came into play. So uh, you, you said it was about around two and a half months between the you know mm-hmm. first edit and the final final cut or whatever. How much time did you usually have? from like when when the, the the entire episode was locked it was done it was ready for air to when it actually aired and i know that it probably changed throughout the course of a season but generally speaking like what were you kind of aiming for about a year on about that. a year is see that's that's just i mean there's just something about that which looking at it in hindsight right because i mean we all would tune in on saturday night or whatever it was and see this episode and then be like damn you know or whatever and then just to think that you know reverse engineering that thinking like there were people who a year ago saw it and Mm -hmm. that was it and like we i mean i'm just thinking about it like with rebels now like you know, I, I was at, you know, celebration and, you know, Filoni was there and he showed us the first episode of the new season. And, you know, he's there telling us like, this is the final season or whatever, but I'm guessing based on what you're saying, like it's probably all been done for a while. That's just mind bending. Like as a fan, like this is new information to the world. And yet there is a team of, of people who have been, you know, have had it there, just sitting there, ready to go for like a year. That's crazy. It's, it's crazy. I don't know. Yep. 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 Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, and initially, like I said, you know, it, it would average out to about a year. Um, initially, it was more than that because we, we basically worked on the show for two full years before we were on the air. That's that's nuts. Now, I mean, getting getting back to because you were talking about uh, watching it in the theater, you know, making sure that it's it's you know feature level quality and everything. And this is something a question which I've had for well ever since actually ever since Celebration Four when Filoni showed that that first you know footage at at, at the convention, which I, I actually was there for that too. Um, the aspect ratio is two point three nine to one. Um, that's crazy and awesome, you know, and, and it really does sort of signal what you're talking about, you know, with Lucas wanting it to stand up to the quality of the features and fit in with the features, I think in a lot of ways, but, um, it aired at, in 16 by nine. And I'm wondering, like, as, as the creative team, you know, as a member of the creative team, as an editor who's, you know, obviously going through this with the fine tooth comb, you're talking about lighting and stuff like that. How much or did, was there, there any, you know, thought to what the framing would be like on TV compared to, you know, now as it is on Netflix and it's, you know, finished real form or, or whatever? The short answer would be <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, uh, despondency at first for the care we were putting um to make it look to frame to compose and to edit um to the format that george had picked why he picked it versus how it looked on tv at first um it was very frustrating um both from a I mean, you know, to a certain degree, I remember spe- specifically the directors, um, because these guys, starting with Dave, 
you know, and, and his team, um, they put in a lot of work to try, you know, we didn't always succeed, but to try to compose that literally there was no, there was no, um, there was not one shot, one scene where you would say, Oh, well, whatever, it's good enough. You get, you get the idea. I mean, they would never let that fly. If, and, and I was there in the cutting room, you know, when, when we, there were some episodes where not intentionally, but we had, we were at that level where it's kind of like, you get it, you get the idea. And it just would not, it would, we would get shut down and they would say, Nope, we're, we're, we're going to go back and we're going to, we're going, we, it has to be, it has to be perfect. Um, and these guys, you know, I remember specifically one of the directors, Stuart Lee, um, He's the first director I worked with when I became story editor, and and he was so frustrated um, with because he had he worked so hard, he had worked his butt off to to compose and frame some shots, which then leads into the way they're cut. Um, and you know, if we talk about that later, you know, it's basically one of the rules of editing is you know you cut based on where things move in frame and where they are at the end of the frame based on what you know the, where the subject your eye gets drawn to is in the next shot and so on. And so, you know, all that requires a lot of thinking <laughs> um, and a lot of painstaking. Again, it's kind of like building a, a ship in a bottle, right? It's, it's, it's minutia. And when you spend all this time and then you turn on your TV and especially, and, and you know, now granted, some that would the eight or nine-year-old who watches the show notice or care? Of course not. Um, but when you're the guy who slaved until two o'clock in the morning to get your camera to the, be at the perfect position um, for that framing and all of a sudden you watch it on TV and it's completely off, it makes you feel like, oh man, why did I, you know, that's, that's a bummer. So, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it, it, it was, it was, we were definitely aware and, um, you know, we would have all kinds of jokes about the way we watch it and not watch it. We, we would have viewing parties and, um, I remember one time, actually, we were supposed to screen, I think it was one of our season premieres. I, I couldn't tell you which one, but um, however, whoever had set it up, we got into the screening room and, and they were, they were um, projecting kind of the, the, this, this feed that we were getting from, from Cartoon Network. And, and, it, it, and it just looked so bad <laughs> that we just, we just stopped and said, you know, and, and George was there. And and we were like we basically all said ah, you know what screw it. let's just go have dinner we're not gonna watch it like that <laughs> we're gonna wait until we can watch it right so yeah well I I definitely uh, feel your pain on that and 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 I, I I want you to know that as a viewer every time I saw some sort of awkward pan or some you know person who was you know cut off slightly on one side of the frame or whatever it did make me cringe so you know. I'm I'm glad that now, you know, I mean, Netflix is the standard by which everything is judged, apparently. So I'm glad that now we can finally see these things in their correct aspect ratio. And and we did, um, if I remember correctly, um, I, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure that um, what happened is it got so bad, I couldn't tell you exactly at what point it was. It, it was early on. Um, I, if I had to guess, I would say maybe season two or around but somewhere earlier in the life of the show it got bad enough that basically uh dave said okay if we're going to have to quote unquote butcher you know our final cuts at least we will do it ourselves 
I don't want I don't want people who don't know and don't care don't understand what we did to do it arbitrarily. And what we did is we we already had um, an online process that ILM was doing for us, where they would take the final cut and they would they would online it with the, the source frames and do a, a color correction pass. So we rolled that into that process. Um, one of the editors there at ILM would actually be in charge of creating the it's not really a pen and scan, but you know that 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 edited version um, for for framing and try as much as possible to to make it to make it still feel right. Oh, that's that's cool. That's the way to go, you know. Thanks everybody for tuning in to Great Shot Kid and a special thank you to Nick for being a part of this episode. This is actually a part 1 of the interview and so that will be dropping very soon. In the meantime, you can reach Great Shot Kid at thenerdparty.com/greatshotkid. You can contact us at thenerdparty.com/contact. And you can, of course, reach out to us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash the nerd party on Twitter at join nerd party. Find Mike on Twitter at mubbles 3k or co-hosting his other shows on Trek FM. He's a co-host of the edge and stage nine with me. And he's also co-host of commentary track stars over on commentary And you can find Nick over on Twitter at red Nicodemus. And you can also find him on Facebook. So thanks again to Nick. And we look forward to bringing you part two of this interview. And remember, we are going to be doing our chapter-by-chapter analysis of Splinter of the Mind's Eye. So pick up your copy and start reading chapter one. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.